0: Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Jarrell Mason in another edition of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers. Why are they here to be celebrated? So with me on today's episode, I have a person that's been in every sector of the gospel music industry for years, working for various labels on the PR marketing side. She's the founder and CEO of the Bellamy Group which helps independent artists regardless of genre and also faith-based and nonprofit organizations get your brand out there. And we're going to talk about those plaques she got behind the wall, all that (laughs) and more in Music City, USA, Nashville with Miss Benita Bellamy Kelly. Welcome to Beyond the Album Cup.
1: Oh, thank you. It is super great to be here. And um, I'm excited about this. So let's let's chat it up. Come on, let's go. Let's dig in. <laughs> yeah, let's
0: go ahead and dig in like we're at some restaurant. Get us some Nashville hot chicken.
1: Oh, yeah. I got you. Some hot chicken. Come on now. Or yeah. some barbecue. barbecue. Yeah. We got barbecue. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I do. I do barbecue. I'm from North Carolina. I know all about the barbecue. Yeah. I'm a wimp when yeah. it comes to spice. I'll just let you know. So I'll get a mile. <laughs> do, Nashville hot.
1: I don't do hot chicken. See, I don't do hot chicken. Now I'll take you to the hot chicken place, but I don't do all that hot stuff. But barbecue, I got you.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we won't be on hot ones on first Week feast. So we ain't got to worry about that. So let's go yeah. ahead and jump right into it. Where were you born and what led you to this journey called the music industry?
1: Wow. Well, I am a true country southern slash girl. <laughs> I was born in Tennessee. I was born in a small town called Elizabethton. Um, you mentioned um, recently going to Pigeon Forge. Well, I was born even further east in Tennessee than Pigeon Forge. Uh, Elizabethan is at the sector of where Tennessee North Carolina and Virginia meet in that corner. So if you stand in my backyard, my hometown, you can see all three states and all the mountains, basically the Blue Ridge Parkway, the Smoky Mountains, Rhone Mountain. That's where I was born and raised. Very rural, very country. Um, everybody black I was related to. <laughs> Uh, and not a lot of culture there just good old bluegrass country music I grew up listening to my grandmother's am radio um and uh southern gospel music that's what we had for entertainment and um I mean, that that was our life, and I I always tell people I escaped after high school. After I graduated, I went to college there in my hometown, um, but, you know, went to college for a few years, and then found my way to Nashville, basically looking for a job, and I wanted out of East Tennessee. I wanted something more, because I had been studying um, MassCon PR, and um, grew up in church, playing the piano, played the piano in church, so that's where the music started, and I wanted to do something else with it, so I found my way to Nashville.
0: Okay, so are you a classically trained pianist or was it by ear and just learning from whoever was playing piano in church that Sunday?
1: Both. Um, As a little girl, um, I was in Sunshine Band, all those who remember Sunshine Band, you know, and we sang and they threw me on the piano and found out that I could kind of hear music and play by ear. So I started just tinkling and playing by ear. And once I kind of got good at it, mom and dad were like, well, you know what? time to put you in lessons so they put me in lessons and from there I just I just took off and I studied classical piano through school I started out playing all my teachers I went through about four teachers (laughs) and went to I started studying college piano college while I was in high school and I went on to study um, classical piano performance in college yeah so grew up with it and they taught me they 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 made me learn to read music and and um have and to take lessons
0: hmm so not flying off the cuff like Nick Cannon was trying to do in Drumline.
1: I'm not, I, I know, no, we gonna read music. You gonna know how, <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> yep. Or you will be embarrassed and be out of that first chair. Now, uh-huh. upon doing my research on you, I saw that you were named Miss Buccaneer at East Tennessee State, is that correct?
1: Yes, that too. Another way to, um, I auditioned my first few years in college with piano scholarship. so I won a piano scholarship. Um, and then decided to try this beauty pageant thing, uh, not just because I wanted to be cute and be in a beauty pageant, but because I like to play and I wanted to show off my talent and I needed money, <laughs> I needed a scholarship. So um, I did do pageants at school and was the first Miss Buccaneer, well, the bl- first black or African-American Miss Buccaneer at that college. And check this out. They actually discontinued the pageant a year after I left and they don't have it anymore. So actually I still rain. <laughs>
0: so you still got your t-area and your sash somewhere so you can get, have it. She is, get that pageant wave now you mentioned going to east tennessee state so what was it like culturally knowing that the african-american population wasn't as high like let's say at a tennessee state or any of the other hbcus located in the south and i can relate as being an alum of a PWI, UNCG, and how you had to kind of, sort of, have to carve out your own space when you're within those spaces where there's a small number of you. So we got to make it our own, knowing that it's it's different if you're at like Tennessee, Vanderbilt, or Belmont.
1: Exactly. You know, it it college is fun anyway, um, and there are just different dynamics. Um, at being at a, uh, I guess a traditional college and, or being at an HBCU and our small, I think at that, I'm gonna try to recall, maybe it was like four or 5% black at the time not a lot of African-American students at the college at the time. So we were close. We knew everybody and we were close. Um, and that made it kind of cool because we all hung out and we were close and we were great. You know, it was a cool environment and we made it our own. And we did have a Black Affairs, we called, we, we had a Black Affairs Association. Um, so we in, got ourselves involved and um, we had a gospel choir and a played for the gospel choir. So we did the thing, regardless of if there were, you know, we were few in number, but we did the thing. We, we always stayed together as a community. Community and supported each other, um, and we just made it a fun time. We, we really had a good
0: time. Mm, now you mentioned Nashville, and the first thing that comes to mind when you think of Nashville is country, the Grand Ole Opry, Mother Church, the Ryman, all of the honky tonks, Ernest Tubb's, and I didn't notice until <laughs> Kim Burns' amazing documentary about the history of country music just how important. African Americans and uh, Appalachian or Appalachian, depending on what part of the country you're from, culture played in country music, and the likes of D. Ford Bailey paved way for the late great Charlie Pride, and later on Darius Rucker, Jimmy Allen, Kane Brown, Reese Palmer, and Mickey Guyton. So, can we speak on the impact of African Americans in country music, and that a lot of people may not know that?
1: Yeah, and I think that's important that we. Um, that we realize that there are more people um, contributing to music genres like country music than what we see today. That there is a long lineage um, and people who have come before us. Just like, and of course, we lost Charlie Pride. I think this year, or last year. Um, so, um, who who paved the way for um, King Brown right now to do what he does? Um, um, there are so many people who have come before him, and we we got to continue to recognize them and this unique thing to be in Nashville to see, I've been in, I've been in Nashville for about 30 years. Um, and I have seen it kind of evolve culturally. Um, I've seen it where, you know, the African-American population in the music industry was pushed aside. Wasn't, you know, we were ignored. Um, and now to see people like, uh, Mickey Guyton and gang Brown and, and, um, uh, these artists coming up being on primetime television and you know on country radio and presenting awards and having hits that's amazing to me and i think that without charlie pride and those who came before him they they would not be Without a doubt, but we have to continue to recognize that and celebrate that because there is still more room for more African American um, artists in country music and we we got to keep stepping forward to do that it's not just a white music industry.
0: No, it is definitely not, because me being from North Carolina, I can remember watching Hee Haw on the weekends from my granddaddy and just really sitting in front of the TV and really... Blue is fair and
1: agony
0: on me. I'm a picking and I'm a grinning.
1: We watched, we watched, um and I tell you what else my 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 mother, my grandmother made us watch um, was Lawrence Welk. Now you're old if you remember Lawrence Welk, and that was kind of the classics. And I remember that Bubble Machine, but it's like that kind of music. You you can't think of it as you know white music. You got to think of that. It's just music. We have to start embracing culture as it is and start wrapping ourselves in more than music than just black music. We're a part of so much music more than we think we are.
0: Yes, we definitely are. It's, it's a gumbo of different influences, but when it comes together, it tastes oh so good because you look at the modern day country artists like uh, like we mentioned, Kane Brown, Mickey Guyton, Sam Hunt, Florida Georgia Line, uh, Casey yeah. Musgraves, Kelsey Ballerini, and how those artists are blending genre lines between pop, rock, rap, right. R&B. Look at Taylor Bossible. Swift. She originally started off Bossible. as a country artist and then made the full rock. leap to pop.
1: Exactly, and so many country artists. Um, now you have um, CeCe Winans who is paired up with, um, oh, I just forgot that, I'm uh, 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 um, looking right at her um, from American Idol. Oh, She did a duet with her. Um, Carrie Underwood. <laughs> Carrie Underwood, you know, they have, they've been doing duets and, you know, country and gospel and media and Winona Judd does gospel. I mean, so much of that blends and crosses lines and blurs lines and, you know, we have to keep embracing it. And and we, we as African-Americans can't be afraid to cross over and 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 embrace and also enjoy what we love. I like country music. Yeah, I love
0: country music, love country music too, but I'm sure back in the early nineties, you probably was telling your best friend, like, I listen to Carver. And they look at you like you're crazy. But Garth Brooks was huge in the 90s. Yes. Him, Shania Twain, and they were really one of the... Fir- two of the first big superstars of the 90s that kind of took what Dolly Parton, Willie Nelson, and a lot of those older acts did and crossing country over to where, hmm, it's known just beyond Nashville. They're worldwide superstars.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. I Like I said, I grew up listening to AM Blue Flash Radio, so... <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can recall a bunch of bluegrass and country songs, yes, and southern gospel.
0: Mm-hmm. So what was it like mixing in those influences and then hearing, you know, your urban gospel and R&B and really meshing that and then getting your foot in the door with your first industry job?
1: Well, you know, I, I always um, say that I, I'm so happy that I have such an eclectic and culturally diverse background. Uh, Because it, it, one, I think one, it creates tolerance within yourself overall. If you can experience different realms of culture, um, it makes you a well-versed and well-tolerant person. Um, And for me, I'm able to just hear and embrace all types of music. So when I'm uh, in the setting of my work, I mean, you can bring anything to me and I can decipher it. I can hear it. I can, I can tell if it's a hit. I can classify it. Um, You know, that makes my job easier, being able to um, understand and read music and to have um, embedded in me classical, um, southern gospel, country, all of that. I can hear the different instruments. I can um, decipher different um, rhythms. And it just makes a a better um, listening environment to be able to decipher music overall. You know, I embrace that. I love that part of of my background, being able to just really indulge in so many types of music and apply it to what I do.
0: Mm -hmm. And why is it, in your opinion, that you think the two worlds of urban gospel and CCM don't really meet in the middle? It's kind of like, okay, we have your Kurt Franklin's, your Fred Hammond's, your, uh, Dietrich Haddens, and then you have your Hill songs, your Toby Max, DC talks, and they're both on separate sides of the room, but you're speaking the same message, but you really don't see a meeting in the middle. Say we both serve the same God. We both worship differently, but we're all here for one common purpose. So why do you think that is?
1: Well, you know, I, and, and, and some are going to find this favorable and some are going to, are going to be like, mm, girl, um, I don't see that there there I think we over overthink and over over I don't know the word I'm gonna say over exaggerate but I think we overthink that meeting in the middle thing because here I say that because when we think about classifications in music every genre does it um even reggae has different they have soca they have um reggaeton they have different classifications of reggae Um, you have different classifications of jazz, you have classic, you have smooth jazz, um, you have the standards, Um, you have different classifications of pop, of, of rock, of all different, all these different genres have different classifications. That does not exempt Christian music. So, therefore, there's going to be a separation of Urban gospel music when it comes to Kirk Franklin, Yolanda Adams, and Fred Hammond, and worship and CCM when it comes to um, Need to Breathe, and uh, um, DC Talk, and um, Lauren Daigle. It's different classifications. Yes, we are talking about the same, be one, the almighty, be one God that that language always meets in the middle that's never going to um divide us that never divides us when we come together on stage we can sing about that one god but when it comes to the music industry part of it where there's a declassification where there's a classification of of genres it's going to be separated um and i think sometimes we overdo it just a little bit and why can't we all just be one genre well you know, then we would have one big radio station, you know, I can't log on and just turn to Sirius XM, Kirk Franklin Praise and listen to Deidre Haddon or so-and-so, I would have to listen to everybody, not everybody wants to listen to that, I have my cup of tea, what I like to listen to, everybody doesn't like country, everybody doesn't like, you know, this, that, so there's always going to be this classification of genres, now, on the flip side of that, I am a big advocate for one voice in gospel music, because, um, we we do tend to segregate. Now, that's a different. There's a difference in segregating and being classified and, and classifying our genres. When we talk about white and black, we need to stop that. Just like black people can't do country. Who says black people can't do CCM? Who says white people can't do gospel? Who says that's where we need to stop? that's that meeting in the middle. We have to start meeting in the middle. That's a race thing. We have to stop the race division, not necessarily the classification division. We got to stop the race division.
0: Mm, And do you find that um, prevalent within gospel radio where when you're trying to take an artist to, let's say CCM and they say, oh, this is too urban and we know the code words for that or you try to take another artist to urban gospel and it's like oh it's too ccm and we know the code word for that too so how do you try to combat that in the industry when promoting artists
1: and and again you know we we do run into that um and you have to know and and i and actually i just kind of dealt with that recently um an artist had a gospel song and wants to take it to CCM. Well, I started out at, my first job was at EMI Christian Music Group, which was a hub for EMI gospel, Sparrow Records, Forefront, all these record labels. So we had black gospel, CCM, Worship, Worship Together, all this music in one. Um, So I learned by working at the gospel label, what CCM would, could, should, and going to do, especially when it comes to radio. Um, So this gospel artist had a song, but, It was not CCM. Now, there's a sound to CCM, just like I'm saying, not a color, but a sound, just like there's a sound to reggae. Everybody knows that reggae beat when you hear it. I'm not going to play a reggae song on the smooth jazz station, am I? no because it's a classification of a genre it's a sound it's a it's a creative sound it's a type of music so when you have a gospel song that sounds like a gospel song meaning our genre when it sounds let's just keep it playing when it sounds like a Kirk Franklin song or a Richard Smallwood song or a Lamar Campbell song they're not gonna play that over there where they're playing um um uh, um, uh, Need to Breathe, like I said, or Lauren Daigle or Carrie Job. It's a different genre. So I can't take that song of it. It's a genre. And radio is div- divided up into classifications, not into color. Unfortunately, that's, again, that topic, color. Radio, just like you turn your dial, you look for the hip-hop station if you want to hear rap. If I don't want to hear rap, I turn it to the jazz station. It's the same with gospel. I cannot take a gospel song over to CCN and expect them to play it. Don't blame that on color. Blame that on the genre. They're not going to play a choir song or a quartet song. They're going to play Lee Williams and Scripps QCs on The Fish. That's not what they play. So mm-hmm. we got to learn that.
0: <laughs> yeah, that'll be the day when I hear some Williams brothers on the fish or some what? Jackson Souvenirs. Like, what in the world is going right, on the
1: Mighty Clouds?
0: <laughs> mighty Clouds of Joy. Or on the other side on Urban Gospel, you'll probably hear Newsboys or Lauren Daigle, right. And you're like, man, this feels like the early days of BT when Elton John and George Michael were getting their play. And uh speaking right. of uh BT and video soul, uh the Winans family, they were really one of the first families of gospel and acts. And I should also mention the Clark sisters. And then before them, Reverend James Cleveland, the Hawkins singers, Bishop Rance Allen and his brothers and what they were doing and how those predecessors were really the first to really take gospel and r and and really meld that into what we now know as urban gospel and also can't. Forget to mention Sam Cooke and the uh, Soul Stirrers wow. and so on and so forth. But back to the Winers. Uh Personal story for me. I can remember being five years old, 1990. Dad had a Honda and he had the cassette for the Winans Return album. And it's time. And me being a big R&B fan and knowing Guy and Teddy Riley and seeing his name, Bernard Bell, and I'm like, this sounds just like Guy and how it really piqued my interest and say, gospel doesn't really have to sound boring and traditional. It can sound just like what I'm hearing on the radio, like I'm hearing Guy or New Edition or Jodeci.
1: Yeah exactly and I remember that man that was the jam how about that um and I think that's great that um we as a genre can be side of so diverse in what we sound like from a hymn to you know he looked beyond my fault and saw my need with piano and organ to you know a mix or a remix with Teddy Riley and Missy Elliott you know because you know we can have it we can and, and people can't be afraid of that you know make a joyful noise well everybody's joyful noise is different it could be a country joyful noise it can be an R&B joyful noise it can be a rap joyful noise just make a joyful noise as long as you were making it towards the lord you know, so I love it. I love it that our music can be, you know, a club banger.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. And I mentioned the Clark sisters and how I was so glad everybody got to see their influence not only in gospel, but R&B in the influence of their mother, the late Dr. Maddie Moss Clark. And how, if you listen to pretty much any R&B singer or R&B girl group in the 90s from Escape who covered In My Living in Vain, SWV, Faith Evans, how they were probably and Clark sisters. Church,
1: yes. And, you know, and you talk about R&B music. If you really break down, um, I, I would probably say, I'd, I'd say two-thirds or even yeah, more than that of the R&B songs, church. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> you know, gospel. It, it falls back to the roots of gospel. I mean, you can break it down to a hand clap, put a hand clap on it. R&B music, it's gospel.
0: <laughs> yep, Soul Clap, and uh, one gospel group that I'm glad I discovered, although late, but glad I discovered was Commissioned, because I can remember hearing, you know, Jodeci, Voice to Men, Shy, Silk, always mentioning Commissioned as their reference point for their influence, for and I in had Spanish. a chance to interview uh, Mitchell Jones from Commission, and I was like, man, you guys really paved the way and modernized the sound for a lot of 90s r&b groups even kc from jodeci when he was singing on i'm still waiting on forever my lady he did a run from running back to you and how if you put on a commission record now you could say close your eyes and you wouldn't know that these guys were gospel because their vocals their blends were pure r&b and same thing goes for uh, take six
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, a lot of people get their, um, they pattern themselves after gospel artists, you know, and I can, you know, I can remember doing the same thinking I could harmonize like or figure out how to play some of the songs that Commission did. um, And, you know, just that type of style, they were trendsetters, moving that over like Andre Krauts was a trendsetter, Commission was a trendsetter. That that sound and that style broke barriers, you know? And to for us to think that our music could sound like this, not just like a hymnal, but Commission, they're doing this kind of harmony and this kind of beat, man, blew everybody's mind.
0: Right, so what was it that took, let's say the older traditional, or should I say seasoned saints, of the church to say the music of the church don't have to sound like it's in the four walls. It could be outside of the four walls. You got to meet the people where they're at. And if it takes maybe using a sample or a beatbox, then by all means, if it gets you closer to him, do it.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I think for everybody has their own um preference and style. For me, I I, I love hymns. I love some hymns, you know, on my worst day, a hymn can get me through. Uh, but I am a rap fan. <laughs> on Also on my worst days, I need me some rap <laughs> and just some good music. Um, so I think it is that uh, what I've seen, and I work with a lot of hip hop artists. One thing that I've seen the church embrace hip hop artists is that Hip hop artists—they're serious about it, and they're not just out there making beats and and doing this. It's not a game to them. Um, a lot of my um, rap and hip hop artists are pastors, uh, and they're ministers, and they're out there really working hard and doing street ministry. And I think that's part of what has really um, helped the church embrace a lot of the new music or the young the the younger demographic that is doing the more R and B and hip hop and rap music is that they see them actually working for the Lord. And I think that's the key. Um, And it's just, you know, honestly, just give them a chance, you know, that's, that's what they really needed is just give them a chance to show them what they can do. And a few churches have allowed them to do that. And, you know, the doors open, and it's opened some eyes as well.
0: Yeah, just as long as they don't try to put a Christian rap to even if you Buck by crime mob or no more playing GA by Pastor Troy, cause some people that were saints will go sanctified and relive their club days if that beat yeah. comes on <laughs> inside the church. I can throw don't you some it. heavenly bows and meet, you, have you go see your Maker if that drum roll comes around. Now, we mentioned the Grand Ole Opry uh, earlier and its influence in not only country music, but just music overall. And for those of you that's been living under a rock for a decade and don't know what the Grand Ole Opry is, I would compare it to what the Apollo Theater is for soul, for R&B. The Opry is the Mecca for country. Anybody who's anybody in country has performed on the stage, but here's the kicker. In order to be a member of the Opry, you got to get invited in.
1: Yep. <laughs> sure do. Yeah. And it's legendary. Um, like you said, you have to be invited in by current members. And those members are like Garth Brooks, Reba McIntyre, Dolly Parton. Those are the members of the Grand Ole Opry. And they are legends that are members of the Grand Ole Opry.
0: Because mm-hmm. I, I took a tour there two years ago and I was just blown away of the history and then just seeing the sacred circle that he took from the old rhyming and put it in the Opry and how when most artists step in that circle, for them, it's the equivalent of rubbing that lucky log at the Apollo that you're standing that, on history, you're, right. you're standing on the shoulders of the likes that came before you like Dolly Parton, Charlie pride ronnie milsap randy travis Alan jackson reba mcintyre the judds the list goes on and all of all the great country artists that stepped on that stage and really made a name for themselves at the
1: opera mm-hmm. yeah it's legendary the opry the um grendel opry house um and we almost lost it because you know we had the flood about 10 years ago it did flood the Grand Ole Opry, but they, they managed to save the stage in the circle, um, but it is legendary. And um, if you ever get a chance, anybody's listening, visit the Grand Ole Opry. It is, it is a very iconic structure in, in Nashville. And um, you know, the Stellar Awards has been there, so many different events. There's all, It's not just country. They have different events there, different concerts. Brian McLean has been in concert there. The Stellar Awards has been there. Other shows come to the Grand Ole Opry, but go there and visit it just because it's such an iconic structure.
0: And so what is it that you think is about Nashville where a lot of young songwriters want to come break their, cut their teeth, try to get on music row and pl- perform at the honky tonks and really become the next Chris Stapleton or Jason Aldean or Luke Combs?
1: Yeah, and I love Chris Stapleton. Um, you know, it, it, in Nashville, it is what it, it is its name. It's Music City. Um, we have every recording studio here. There is a representation of every record label here. Um, there is a bar, a ju- joint, uh, something on every corner <laughs> downtown. Uh, music exudes here. And, you know, if music is here, then the record execs are here. Um, uh, songwriters, musicians, singers, they all flock here because this is where you can network and find um, find yourself uh, and maybe find a record deal. Um, talent gets found here. Uh, you could be at a, a country bar or in a jazz club. We've got some cool jazz clubs here or in church and you never know who's going to be in the audience because everybody here seems like, you know, every other person works in music. So you never know who you're gonna be singing in front of or playing for. And that's how people get discovered. I think Chris Stapleton got discovered in a bar like that. Um, So people flock here because the chances are so much greater of being discovered here. And there's so many opportunities to play. Um, Now you can even hear people in the airport. We have like, I think there's like three or four spots in our national airport where there's music, live music. Every time you come in and out of the airport, there's a artist and it's not country. Um, I know one of my friends, um, Sonia uh, Tompkins, she's called the jazz girl. She's in there sometimes. Um, It's from jazz, the gospel, from as soon as you hit the ground, in Nashville, you hear music. So people come here because it is Music City, USA. You can be discovered here. You can discover music here. Um, you can record, release, whatever you want to do, you can find it here. All the resources are here from record industry, the record execs to the studios, to the publishing companies, to the live bars and, and restaurants and clubs, to the, to the um, big venues like Bridgestone and um, the amphitheater. We've got them all. So people come here. for Music City.
0: Right. And you can definitely find yourself maybe on the right day seeing a future star performing at the Blue Blue Bird, which is seen in the show Nashville or any local church. But as we know, with the history of Tennessee, we mentioned country music, bluegrass, but three hours west of Nashville, we have the blue city of Memphis, Tennessee, home of Stacks, And all of the likes of that. So can you talk about how the influence of Memphis and Nashville sometimes tend to cross over and really embrace like both cultures of, you know, this is the history and influence of Memphis and of Nashville and how meshing it together really says, oh, this is really good.
1: Yeah. And it's cool that, you know, it's, it's still in the state, Um, you know, Tennessee is full of music, arts, entertainment. And, you know, I hopped down to Memphis was just in Memphis last month and stayed at um, right uh, beside Elvis Presley's um, house. And what is it called? Graceland. Uh, Graceland. (laughs) Yes. And, and I'm still in awe. It's like, Oh, that's Graceland. That's Elvis. Uh, But, you know, Memphis, There's no place like Memphis. Memphis is, um, of course, the mecca for blues and soul music. You can go when I now when I go to Memphis. Memphis, I won't say this, but it makes me feel more black (laughs) because it's like you got that. Soul music, and you got blues, and you got good food, and you've got you know the 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 African the the museum, the Martin Luther King Museum, the Lorraine Motel. It's like I find my cultural roots in Memphis, Um, and there's great churches in Memphis. Memphis is, I think, it it exudes. um, It's like the heartbeat of black music for me. Nashville's music city, but Memphis. It just has this heartbeat for black music because you've got good gospel music there and you've got blues. You can go down Bill Street, go downtown Memphis, and boom, blues music. You can find food, drink, music, 360. It's all around you. Great barbecue, great food. Memphis has it.
0: Yes, you definitely have to get your fix when you go to Memphis, Uh, especially the Hush Puppies from B.B. King's. Those are delicious. B.B. <laughs> King, sent me my check in the mail and also a replica of Lucille. Right. And also the Reverend Al Green has his church in Memphis. Right. Now, I got to tell you yes. a story about that. When my wife and I went on our vacation to Tennessee in Memphis, we went to the Reverend Al Green's church. And he happened to be there that Sunday. And a lot of members said, you lucked out because he's hardly ever there. So I was trying my hardest not to fanboy in the church and say, that's Reverend Al Green and stand up, filled with the Holy Ghost and say, can you sing? I'm tired of being alone.
1: All right. I would have fanned out.
0: I'm like, that's the Reverend. We was like three feet away from him. And he sounds just like the record.
1: Yeah. Wow. That I bet that was a great experience. Never been to his church. I will, I will have to do that sometimes.
0: Yeah, it's definitely great. Stax Museum is great. And they had Isaac Hayes' Cadillac in wow. the museum and also his uh, Oscar from uh, Shaft and just a lot of artifacts. And like you said, Memphis is rich with music history, which was sold and how you know, B.B. King, Rufus Thomas, the much go down the line of all the artists on stacks, pretty much yeah. introduced raw soul music nationwide. And it was definitely different than what Motown was doing while it was urban. Motown had that pop shine, sheen to
1: it. Right yeah yeah motown and i I was uh, fortunate to visit uh, motown uh in detroit and that that was a, a an incredible experience but that's a whole a whole different we could talk on motown you know all day long but it, it kind of a flip from Memphis it's a whole different look at it but more of like you said a structured sheen uh more of a commercial polished look to it but um Motown is legendary you can't you cannot touch motown
0: no you definitely <laughs> cannot touch that now i want to go back into gospel and talk about Kurt. So what was it about Kurt Franklin and his style and sound when he debuted that pretty much not shake gospel to the core, that's not what I wanna use, but get gospel out of that being, it has to be by the book. Because I knew that once I saw him on Soul Train, on BET, and once Stomp got Airplay on MTV, that okay, he really perfected the formula that his predecessors started and took it in the overdrive
1: yeah I mean you know and I hate to use the term out of the box but he came out of the box um and 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 wasn't afraid to do it for one and um you know one of my kind of mentors Vicky McLaughlin who signed um, him to her label who kind of helped Kirk be discovered and discovered Kirk they really went for it and um You know, I don't think it was all projected and planned, because they'll tell you it wasn't. But he was just being Kirk. He was just being who he was. And that's one thing I tell artists today. Um, Don't try to be what we already have. We have that. We got that. Be you. What if Kirk decided he was going to be like Richard Smallwood? Kirk decided to be Kirk Franklin. That got him out of the box. That started something new, like a revolution for real, because he had a specific sound. Um, And just like today, we have modern artists like that, like Molly Music, who I've worked with, told Molly, don't try to change being Molly Music, be Molly Music. Nobody was sounding like Molly Music, out of the box. If Kirk Franklin did not continue to be his original self, I don't think gospel music would have progressed the way it would have progressed today. Would we have Stomp being played in the clubs? No, <laughs> who did that? Kirk Franklin started that, you know? So I would, I would say to that, even talking to artists, be genuine, be who you are. Even if it sounds different, don't try to pattern yourself off of what we have. That's what creates trends and and breaks, um, and breaks, breaks trends and, and brings people outside of the box. That's how Kirk, that's how commission Started. That's how Kirk was launched. And Yolanda, be you. Continue to be original, and you'll see where that takes you. That's how music evolves. We need music to keep evolving. So be genuine. Be original.
0: Mm, and I find being yourself, but also since the music industry, it is a business first. You're in the business of looking at numbers and metrics and demos and try to figure out what sells. But at the same time, have authenticity, but also critical and commercial acclaim which is a slippery slope so how do you try to balance that with a lot of the newer school artists especially now given the age of streaming and social media and how you constantly have to be in everyone's face and put out content because it's here today gone by the second
1: yeah well you know still be genuine be who you are be original but there's still a formula to this (laughs) you know you cannot bypass the formula of the music industry. Um, We still still look at numbers, we still have to promote, we still have to market, we still have to do publicity, we still have to do radio. All of that contributes to it, regardless of how original you think you are and how out of the box you think you are and how one of a kind you think you are and no matter how great of a hit you think you have, it still has to be promoted. Um, Even more so because now, you know, used to we had albums and um, we could sell 40,000 units in a week. Mm, We ain't doing that right now. We're doing singles and EPs and we're streaming and you're getting sense. Uh, as it relates to used to, we got dollars. Now we're getting cents. So we have to think about how we're promoting and um, marketing our records. Uh, is it more? In a sense, yeah, we are doing a little bit more, but it's a little more strategic. Um, now, and, and honestly, I can even say it's a little more cost-effective. A lot of social media, social media for the most part is free. It's free. Facebook is free. Twitter is free. <laughs> Instagram is free. So for, you know, artists to say you don't have a budget for it. Well, if you ain't got a budget for free something's wrong. So, you know, we, we have to think about how we're promoting this digital music. Part of it is through social media. Is that the only thing we do? No, because everybody doesn't buy music on social media. Social social is what it is. We socialize. We don't go shopping on social media. We socialize. Social media is a part of that. So we still have to do the, the core of marketing, radio, promotions, digital advertising. We're buying banners, we're doing e-blasts, things like that, because it's digital music. People are consuming. They're not um, going out to Walmart and buying an, a, 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 a CD anymore. Barely making CDs. You know, it's on a phone, it's on an iPad, it's on a device. So we have to think about how we're getting our, we gotta meet people where they are. Everybody is on this. 247. 7 This is how we market
0: music now on these phones. Yep. And no more yes. in-store signings, if you can remember those. That's when you oh. used to be in a long line at a record uh-huh. store You yes. wait for the latest album yes. to Waiting come out. The and then the artist uh-huh. would be in the store and they would do a sign or maybe a promo run at your local malls. Yep. Those days are long gone. And how does radio okay. try to find itself in the digital age where Kids nowadays are like, you mean to tell me I got to sit and wait maybe 15 to 20 minutes for this song to be played <laughs> where I can go on my phone and get it now?
1: Yeah, right, on um, Pandora or Spotify, exactly. And, you know, and that's a great thing, um, sort of. You know, it's a great thing that you can have so much accessibility and that you can pick and choose what you want. But it does make our job kind of hard, you know, because we want we, that there's a push and pull to marketing. We want to push it in your face. We want you to, you know, we want you to hear it. But I can't push it if you can go select it. Um, I can't make you listen to a song. So we have to, there's where that frequency of advertising gets into play. Have to continually be advertising. So hopefully you'll see it come down your Facebook stream. You'll see it on an ad in between your video games. You'll see it um, on um, some type of ad on, on uh, YouTube or anything like that. That's that digital marketing where we have to int- intensify our, our efforts because not everybody is going to automatically go or automatically hear something. Sometimes we gotta push it and make you find it because everybody can select what they want to hear. But I don't want to hear um, um Ziel or, or Yolanda Adams or or Dorinda Clark Cole. I skip. What do I do? I skip, right? Skip mm-hmm. it. I don't want to hear it. I want to go to something else. I, we go find our favorite songs and I have my favorite playlist. And that's another thing, playlisting. It's like we, there's a fight to be, you know, get on playlist. Playlist is a big thing. Um, everybody wants to be on a playlist. You've got Spotify, iTunes, and um, Pandora playlist. They're so popular right now because people enjoy playlists. They want. They don't want to hear albums. They want to hear their favorite. Songs, And if you can, if you're fortunate enough to get on a playlist or if you've got a hot song to get on a playlist, that, that beats that line of, let me go try to market and try to push this song out to them because they're going to find you in that playlist.
0: Mm, and that leads to my next question. What led to the formation of the Bellamy Group and how for independent artists, it's kind of tough to really get your foot in the door where unless you have that major label backing or that machine, quote unquote machine, backing you. It's almost like the tree in the forest where nobody's going to hear you if the right people or the right places don't get you exposure.
1: Yeah. Yeah you know um well you know i started out at record labels so i have a a career at being record at at record labels i started out at emi gospel um i was there for about five years i worked at uh went into to mainstream music worked at sanctuary records at a reggae label worked there for two years and then went to e1 light records and worked there for a few years and then decided that was that shift when digital music kind of hit the hit the hit us in the face real hard um and Labels shifted and didn't kind of know what to do. Honestly, that's just the truth. We know what to do. (laughs) It's like Rhapsody, MP3, what's that? We didn't know what to do. So that shift came and in learning that and, and, and understanding how the market had to change, a lot of labels got rid of artists. Uh, and employees. (laughs) Labels downsized. Thank goodness. I never got fired and everything like that. But it was a good time for me um, because I was ready to leave a label. And at that time, independent artists were popping up everywhere. I mean, everybody seemed like they were independent now and nobody knew what to do. Um, And honestly, Drill, at that point, I was ready to leave music too. I was done. (laughs) I was kind of tired of it. I was a little frustrated, a little tired, a little burned out and done. And I had no plans of coming back. But independent artists were on the rise and people started calling me, wondering where I was and wondering if I could help them (laughs) because they didn't have a label and they wanted to keep making music and releasing music, but didn't know how to market it, didn't know how to do it. So I was like, oh man, (sighs) okay, Lord, (laughs) what do I do? Um, And, Long story short, that's how the Bellamy Group got started, because independent artists needed someone with label experience and needed a label force, a machine behind them. And at that time, nobody was doing it. So I started the Bellamy Group and I, I, I kind of act as a label for independent artists and do all that work that the label would do.
0: Yeah, which is a great service. because, Like I was stating earlier, independent artists it's a tough game unless you know some people or you got uh, Ben Alexander and some of his friends, a big amount of those, then it's gonna be a uphill climb. Try to roll the rock and get up to the top, but steady roll down if you don't have all of that. And then some, and a little bit of luck.
1: Right. It's, it's a great time to be an independent artist, you know, um, and it's great to be able to own all of your music and to, shop, you know, call your own shots. But it's tough because you're still competing with big labels and you're still competing for this. You're, you're competing for the same real estate. You're competing for the same airtime. You're competing for the same media interviews as big labels. So you got to have somebody out there pushing for you and working with you that can compete with you.
0: Yep. And to bring a wrestling analogy, it's like when in wrestling, certain people in the industry choose who they want to put over that means if you don't know putting over means who's going to be top dog and for wrestling aficionados especially Tennessee and the Carolinas you know very big in wrestling so I wanted to use that terminology real quick to kind of sort of explain how you know you kind of sort of pick and choose who you want to promote who you want to go here and go there. But briefly, I want to touch on the legacy of these two labels that I can remember seeing a lot as a child, growing up listening to gospel music, Blackberry Records and Malaco.
1: Oh, wow, yeah, I um, have some friends down there, Blackberry, the uh, Williams Brothers, and man, that that's just legendary. Um, Jackson, Mississippi. <laughs> And Malico, you know, um, we were talking about Malico um, the other day, and um, I have a um, Mossy Burke bobblehead that hardly anybody has, Mississippi Mass Choir. But Malico, I think Malico, to me, and I I'm, I'm pro- i don't know if I'm saying this, this may not be correct, but I feel like they have the most extensive catalog of any record label. They have to have like the most ginormous, that's word catalog of music on the planet because they have all the classics from soul to r&b to blues to gospel malico if you go on their website just go on malico's website and look at their catalog they have everything they are the epitome of the classic gospel and black record label malico is amazing
0: mm, or if you have a certain age you remember that commercial that used to come on BT for down yes. Home blues <laughs> Along with Rust Out of the Mountain.
1: Yes. You better. Or, Ru, I'm coming up.
0: Yes. Available on eight tracks, cassettes, CDs, uh-huh. and records. And all could be yours for 1995.
1: No CODs. Oh, on. That's
0: COD. <laughs> right. So, Nashville, we also mentioned uh, Tennessee State. And can we talk about the impact of HBCU marching bands and how they had an influence on? music and then of course eddie george is the men is the football coach at tennessee state
1: yeah and i was just at tsu um participating in a panel uh with some college students um in the music department uh last week but um you know marching bands tsu um any HBCU that has a dynamic I think all pretty much all the HBCUs have dynamic marching bands but I think our HBCU marching bands can the the the, the beautiful thing about that and the most magical thing about that is that they can do everything from an r hit of today and mix it up with a gospel classic and have the stands rocking um that's incredible to me but it's all done with with a dynamic musicianship, there is still an art artistry and an art form in it, uh, and that lets you know that these these music programs thrive and that they're serious about it. That it's not just all show because it's a show, but they're musicians. You know, they're not just giving out scholarships to be given up. These musicians are. Brilliant. They're geniuses and they're amazing at what they do. Um, uh, but they just put on a show and we love it. And I, I love to see TSU. Um, and uh, there's some some great marching bands that that perform, but you know, I'm biased. I'm here in Tennessee, so we have um TSU. Um Fisk is here, you know. We don't really have anything at this but TSU, go go TSU. But
0: you mentioned <laughs> Fisk, and I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the Jubilee singers and Darren Florence.
1: Oh yeah, and in, indeed, who just want a Grammy they didn't win a Grammy Award, um, but um, Fisk Jubilee Singers are, you know, they're historic, they're legendary and the program there uh, continually thrives. And uh, I just met the director and I'm I'm sorry that I can't remember his name, but I just met the director. Um, One of our nieces had her senior recital, uh, music recital graduated from Fisk um, last fall and uh, was able to meet uh, the director of the Fisk Jubilee Singers. But that's an amazing program to me. I love to see that they are so esteemed all over the world, not just here in Nashville or in the US, but people from all over the world know about the Fisk Jubilee Singers because they're so legendary and it dates back for so long. You know, there's there's an epic lineage that comes from uh, the, the, that choir and how many years it's been in establishment and what it means to that university. But, but they're globally known. And um, I'm, I love it that the program still thrives.
0: Right, and for history of HBCUs, look it up on Google or just bench watch a different world and you'll get an understanding <laughs> yeah. for the meaning of HBCUs and what they mean, not only for the culture, but for mainstream culture at large. Now, funny story about Fisk. My wife wanted to go to Fisk, but unfortunately they didn't have a social work program. And that private school tuition hits different when you're out of state.
1: It sure does. Trust me. <laughs> yep.
0: That's why I stayed in state of North Carolina because I knew like, mama, only way I'm going is if I got a scholarship and I'll be looking like Courtney B. Vance in that United Negro College Fund commercial when they say you yeah. came back to school and okay. a little kid get the bucket of spare change, be like, would this help? Or be like wow. that guy that was sitting on the bus stop waiting to go to school and the bus drove past him. My mind would have been wasted then.
1: <laughs> oh, All
0: right, so yeah. can we talk about the plaques that's behind you? Uh, what are some of the plaques that you get behind you there?
1: Oh, wow. You know, I have a few, and actually I'm missing a few. But, um, you know, pl- uh, it- <laughs> For us in the industry, um, we work, you know, of course, with a lot of artists and, you know, the artists always get the award, <laughs> you know, so I've been, I've worked with a lot of Grammy Award winners and Stellar Award winners and devil Award winners, we never get the trophy, but that's okay, they earned it, they're the artists, they get it, uh, but our, our, sometimes our reward is a plaque, like if a, if a record goes gold or platinum, or if it's number one, and then sometimes we just make them because the record has done well, and, and we want to commemorate that, but um, I think you can see, I have A gold record from C.C. Winans, uh, um, C.C. Winans record. I have two alabaster boxes over on the other side. So I've worked a couple of C.C. Winans records. Uh, And Smoky Norfolk, everything in my gospel. Um, And I've got some Stellar Awards plaques. Uh, I, I um, as a uh, creative, was actually nominated for a stellar Award. That's very unusual for executives to get nominated unless you're a creative or director or a graphic designer. And I was a creative director for Earl Bynum and the Mount, their packaging. So I got a stellar nomination for that. So yay me. Um, and Aaron Neville, I created that plaque on my own and got a few others here. Let me scan a little bit. Got a few other little plaques over there. Sure um, Another season. Wow, gospel, and then there's a plaque for Greenleaf, the Stellar nomination for Greenleaf. I worked worked the marketing on the um, series Greenleaf um, soundtrack, and they won a Stellar award last year. Yay, Greenleaf! So that was really fun. So those are some of some of the plaques that I've gotten for working some projects from gospel and um, uh, some compilations. So wow,
0: and you mentioned Greenleaf. Yeah. I loved that show when it was on. It was my guilty pleasure. And you mentioned CC is her, I believe niece Deborah Joy, was on yeah. Greenleaf, and yeah. it's just funny how you know that family, the talent just oozes out. And if you were not a singer in that family, you would be like, man, why didn't I get the singing gene? Right. And on Songland about a year or so ago, Juan Winans, um, and his wife were on Songland, and I was like, that guy looked familiar, and it turned out it was, he was in Wine and two, And then Thank his you. wife was in the female gospel group Out of Eden, which was At discovered Eden. by Toby Mack from uh, DC Talk.
1: Yep. I worked an Out of Eden song for Goatee Records one year. Yeah. So, uh, and I took them to GMWA one year. Check, <laughs> That was an experience.
0: <laughs> and can you talk so, yeah, about that conference that you took Out of Eden to and what is it?
1: Uh, GMWA, the Gospel Music Workshop of America. Um, that it's basically um a legendary conference that happens every year. It's been going on for what 50-some years. The Reverend James Cleveland started that conference um basically, you know, to promote, well, to continue to advocate for gospel music and keep it thriving and alive. Um now it is everywhere. Um, It travels around the country every year. It'll be in a different city. People come from all over the world, actually, to come to GMWA. They have different chapters in in different states and cities. Um, Thousands of people come to this conference that Reverend Cleveland started, and it's about promoting, learning, growing, advocating, uh, discovering gospel music. Um, You can um, find new music there. You can learn new music. You can promote your music. It's 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 like, we call it the gospel prom. Everybody comes <laughs> and we have a great time. Um, and it, it's about really just making sure that gospel music keeps thriving. And um, it's a it's a great conference.
0: Right, and the only thing that's missing, if it was like an all-night um, lock-in, because remember how back in the day, oh, if you went to watch night service and they had they the, youth, the youth lock-in, and y'all staying yeah. till... Eight o'clock at no, night? No, they haven't. You're
1: like six o'clock in the morning. To, I have been to some con- concerts that d- we went all night. We got home at like four o'clock, five o'clock in the quartet night. I remember taking the Blind Boys of Alabama one year and we were like, no, we got to go. Cause it was like three o'clock. We were like, nope, <laughs> we out. They go all night.
0: <laughs> so you put up your church finger and you made an exit stage left.
1: <laughs> I've done it. To, I, and trust me, I will do it. Don't make me leave on you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> My mouth. Yeah, yeah, you put it that church finger before they say the doors of the church are open and uh, wow. there's a certain decorum in the church. Now, the one thing I do miss, like you were stating, how um, independent artists and social media and how there's really no room for artist development, how a lot of artists kind of cut their teeth going to that small hole in the wall church performing at a tent revival out in the middle of a dirt lot. With a tent and we can't pay in money, but we'll sure pay you in a I'm not getting home to seven o'clock Sunday dinner special. Sure,
1: sure will. They'll give you a chicken dinner. They can't give you no money. Can't buy your record. <laughs> but um, yeah, and, and and you know, back in the day that was artist development, you know, traveling around, um, ministering, singing, performing at churches, every church, every tent, um, revival, everywhere. Uh and, and you know, today it's still part of it, but we don't do it enough. It's, you know, and artist development, you know, uh, labels used to do it. And now there are very few labels. So it's it's a missing thing. And part of what I do is artist development because a lot of people think they're ready for this industry and they're just not ready. And so we we do. We take them around the churches, small, medium, large, and have them performing. And I've had them perform at coffee shops, at rodeos, at basketball games, wherever. Doesn't have to be just church. But wherever you can get that practice in, being in front of people and um, performing and perfecting your skill, perfecting your class, being comfortable in front of an audience, um, learning how to work the stage and learning how to talk to people, doing radio interviews, that's artist development. You've got to learn to be able to navigate uh, any type of crowd, any type of situation. And um, used to, you could do that from the Pentecostal church to the church of God in Christ to the Methodists, to the Baptists, you could do that. Now, you know. We don't do that as much.
0: Nope. And you got to learn how to be able to play at a spot where you got no music, where you have music, you have a big stage, you have a small stage, you may have a cordless mic, you may have a mic that had that little bit of slack. You got to learn how to work it just right. So that way you don't trip over the cord.
1: Yeah. You may have a piano and you may have a keyboard. You may have just the tambourine.
0: (laughs) Or you You may just have
1: with a track and that track don't work in the little methodist church you may have to just go uh, they say (laughs) acapella so Mm -hmm. you have to be able to that's artistry knowing how to handle situations like that and it happens to the best of us it happens to you know artists where you never know what'll happen so you got to be ready and learn how to really navigate a crowd
0: Mm -hmm. so it's pretty much your way of getting your reps up so by the time you get to the big stage You're already ready. And before we wrap, can we talk about current projects that you have from uh development group?
1: Sure. Um, if I can remember, let's see, Ben Tankard, my jazz, uh, hall of famer jazz man, Ben Tankard has a new album called shine. Um, and a couple of songs on gospel radio and jazz radio that are doing well. And I have Dawkins and Dawkins who have a new album out. Um, never gets old volume two. They have a new single at radio. Um, come by here. Um, and let's see, who else do I have? I've got a bunch of independent artists that you can see on our Facebook page. Uh, that you can check out and um Earl Bynum, who is another longtime client, is always releasing music. Have some new music from Earl Bynum. San Franklin, um, I have a, a record label that I consult called Ena Music Group, and they have an artist, San Franklin, who's here in Nashville, and she has a new album um called uh The Free Project, That it's really great. And also on Ena Music Group is Zach Williams and One Accord, and they just released a new single last week called jehovah jireh so it's a whole bunch of music if you go to the Bellamy Group facebook page you can check out a bunch of all of our new songs and and albums and artist music and videos
0: yeah, yeah definitely do that and uh, any shout outs you want to give plug your social media and where folks can find these projects
1: yeah shout out to everybody in elizabeth my hometown mom and dad whoop, whoop. <laughs> and my um brilliant amazing handsome boo my husband kevin kelly um And you guys can go find everything about the Bellamy group and me. Um, Social media is the best place. So, um, Bellamy group on Facebook Bellamy group on Instagram uh, and Benita Bellamy all of my social media is there Benita Bellamy or one Benita and you know any questions about the music industry I'm always open to answering questions I do that a lot I teach a lot of classes I mentor um, like I said I was at TSU last week doing a session on the music industry so if you ever have any questions about the music industry uh, let me know just hit me up send me a message DM me and um, hopefully I can help you
0: Yes, it goes down in the DM. Not in that way. Uh, Mentoring and helping goes down down in the DM. Not not that of a stuff. We're gonna leave that to those that are in the uh, Saturday Mm -hmm. night, early Sunday morning, Mm -hmm. backseat in the church crowd. You know what it is, you know how they do. So um, you can uh, catch this interview wherever you stream your podcast and on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash beyond the album cover. And I personally wanna thank you for coming on. And bringing to me Dawkins and Dawkins and Cynthia Jones, whose interview will be out by the time this airs and any other acts that you have feel free to send them my way, ladies and gentlemen, once again, Miss Benita Bellamy Kelly of the Bellamy Group and Jack of All Trades, Master of None. Miss <laughs> Kelly, thank you so very much for coming on to Beyond
1: the thank Album Cover. You. I've enjoyed this. This has been great. Thank you so much. And I appreciate you taking time for all of our artists and clients. Appreciate you.
0: No, thank you.